My whole life, I've been told this one story about my family, about how my great-great-grandmother was killed by the mafia back in Sicily. I was never sure if it was true, so I decided to find out. And even though my Uncle Jimmy told me I'd only be making the vendetta worse, I'm going to Sicily anyway. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi and welcome to Everywhere, a production of iHeartRadio. I am your host, Daniel Scheffler. This week's commandment, thou shalt break down borders. Robert Frost said, before I build a wall, I'd ask to know what I was walling in or walling out, and to whom I was like to give offense. Traveling is all about borders. They are physical or literal ones, those metaphorical ones, and then those deep spiritual ones. As a traveler, I'm always considering borders. Can I cross this? Who will I be when I am on the other side of this border? Why do we have these borders in the first place? And right now, we, the people, are having to rethink borders altogether. The ancient Greeks saw unrestrained movement as one of the four freedoms distinguishing liberty from slavery. An influx of migrants added to wealth and taxes and local defense. And I think those things sound like assets to me. But this thinking is apparently now all gone. We've had wars, excessive poverty, terrorist attacks and environmental changes forcing people to move And as a result, walls are being erected everywhere. My girl AOC recently went to the American southern border to see what the real situation is like. And she was fucking horrified. It's humanity at its lowest vibration. But for some reason, humans like borders. As a species, we like to make sure things aren't too blurry or too complex. That, to our idiotic mind's eye, keeps it all under control. And so since World War II, national leaders have said, let's delineate, let's give this globe higher walls and longer borders, all to pretend that they're offering citizens extra safety. Countries all over the world have done this and have lied about the value of borders. So I'm not saying that borders should be totally open. There should be reasonable checks and restrictions. And in most of the world, that is the way it is, in spite of the conservative media telling you otherwise. What we're really saying is that there should also be reasonable, compassionate, and respectful common sense flexibility. In the 1980s, the big talk was globalization and living and traveling in a borderless society. Finally, a moment to challenge borders had come. The European Union was created to facilitate this concept and had rapidly expanded its reach eastward since. The African continent was establishing a pan-African agreement to facilitate ease of movement. And even the US, Mexico and Canada once tried to keep things breezy and easy to scurry through. But as expected, it was all too loose and hippy-dippy ideal for the power elite. Just look at the happy travelers buying fantasy world passports who thought they could finally explore this globe freely. Most recently, musician Moss Def was arrested in South Africa for trying to leave the country with his world passport. So, fast forward 30 years later, we know that the border-free dream has finally collapsed. But we should hold on to some variant of it to its best principles. As we speak, the new Chinese imperialists are laying down borders in Africa. Mother Russia has expanded her reach, and America is cruelly raising its drawbridge and turning its back on a legitimate asylum seeker. What a turn of events. Now that cheery Canada is showing the world how to handle migrants, 
how to document them thoroughly and integrate them into Canadian bliss. A maple leaf tattoo is always optional. Germany, out of guilt or perhaps some confusion, forgot the integration and documentation part of rightfully letting in millions of hard-up migrants. And now there's a glut of people not quite fitting into that Deutsche lifestyle. As a German citizen, I know how complex things are as a result. Shall we bring up Brexit and the humanitarian crisis in the Middle East? No wonder the system that is Europe is calling foul. If you missed the travel news of the last few months, well, let me brief you. 45 decided that his shameless wall facing Mexico isn't enough. What is of more importance to him is to make sure that immigrants are kept out at all costs, resulting in an internationally watched scandal of splitting up families at the border and detaining them in wartime-like internment camps. Then the Supreme Court upheld 45's long-argued travel ban, accepting the government's argument that the ban was within presidential power to craft a national security policy, and thus his authority to suspend entry of aliens into the United States. For instance, Iranian nationals and their families, who are perhaps American citizens or even dual citizens, or even green card holders, are all unfairly discriminatedly affected through this restricted travel. I call it unconstitutional. So, there are over 60 million migrants and refugees currently on the move around the world. Many, of course, are from Syria, with Canada working to settle 25,000 Syrians across the country by the end of this year. But displaced people are also leaving Haiti, Afghanistan, Jordan, Lebanon, Iraq, North Korea, and all over Northern Africa, fleeing conflict zones, forever wars, failed states, and the effects of climate change. I have met many of these people on my travels, and their stories are heartbreaking. But what they have in common is the simple human need for belonging, the hope for a safer, better life. But it's all because of the concept of border that has now evolved. So, remember Follow the Money in the 1976 film All the President's Men? Well, I think it would be wise to heed that now. Border control and infrastructure are big business. And besides the negative effects borders can sometimes have on humanity, corporations are profiting off our often manufactured fears. That boogeyman, fear of the other, capital O. Race, religious beliefs, sexual expression and gender identity belong to the unpleasant club of the other. So fear drives countries to build ever stricter and more expensive to manage borders. And corporations and probably some compliant politicians profit from this imaginary enemy. Some powers around the world seem to think that grinding down minorities will keep them in check. But as Simone de Beauvoir, who wrote Second Sex, said, all oppression creates a state of war. This is no exception. Blessed be the fruit, a dark war is being birthed. The handmaids know all about borders and it isn't pretty for them either. And that's why Margaret Atwood's Handmaid's Tale is the greatest show on television this century. It depicts a world where borders are both physical and between genders. The show helps understand the disturbing reality of this current administration's racist policies, a new Supreme Court justice, as well as Erdogan's recent victory in Turkey. If you want more, you can also get the sequel, Margaret Atwood's new book, The Testaments. But with pointing out problems, I also feel like we need to offer some solutions. Remember the 1972 educational television series, Free to Be? You and me? Folks like Roberta Flack, Michael Jackson, and Diana Ross 
remind America that gender and racial stereotypes can in fact be broken. It's now nearly half a century later, and we need a new version of this. Free to be here. The message is simple. America shouldn't judge you, because unless you're Native American, you've come from somewhere else. A catchy jingle on every radio station across the country would never do better public good. If radio can magically make you hum Ed Sheeran and Taylor Swift, well... Author Dr. Reese Jones, in his book Violent Borders, Refugees and the Right to Move, argues that getting rid of borders is in fact simply a human rights issue. Because let's face it, the border is, in fact, only inside you. And it's time to rethink how you're living, voting, and being in this world. Are they keeping them out? Or are they keeping you in? Under his eye. Let's take a breather and we'll be right back with Everywhere after a word from our sponsors. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery, but that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story which has morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for sticking around. Here's more of Everywhere. For my next interview, I'm with my friend Sasha Fong, who happens to work at the UN. But more interestingly, we met on an airplane to Jordan and stayed up all night talking. Sasha, I met you on a plane heading to Amman, and I started chatting to you. And I offered you something to sleep, which you refused. But we ended up being friends anyway and spent the most magical time in Amman. And now we are fast friends and I've met your kids. And I'm so grateful that we are friends because you are one of the smartest people I've ever met. And I feel privileged to be in your realm. So thanks for being in studio with me today. And Ella, who's napping. <laughs> Peacefully in your arms. Yeah. It's amazing to be here. I mean, considering the people I've sat next to, this was like the winning lottery ticket. I felt the same. And when you walked down the aisle and you plonked yourself next to me, I had that split second of, oh, I was hoping the seat next to me would stay free. But then you started and you launched into this conversation, like zero notion of small talk. It was right to the essence. Like, let's not waste time. We only have a 12-hour flight ahead of us. <laughs> <laughs> and we needed to sleep on that flight. I was getting up to work and you were presenting to some yeah. fancy director board. <laughs> Not very fancy, but yeah. So the thing that got us talking was you mentioned Eritrea to me mm -hmm. and you had been stationed working for the UN mm -hmm. in Eritrea for two years almost. And we got talking about this incredible country. So perhaps start with telling me how that happened and how you found yourself in this magical place, which I don't think a lot of people know about. It is a magical place. I was only there for one year, but would have gladly stayed longer, except that I had my husband and my kids in San Francisco, and the commute between Asmara and the Bay Area of California is a tricky one. And I would have otherwise loved to stay. It's a place that I always had a craving to go see. 
when I was at university, my roommate across the corridor launched an Eritrea independent support organization and we were sending all sorts of things to Eritrea because they had just become independent and it was this huge deal. And then I nearly had a chance to go earlier in my career, but couldn't. And so it was like this itch I needed to scratch. I had this curiosity for this place that continued to be so mysterious. And so when I got the chance to go a second time, I just knew this is it. This is actually an experience I want to have, and it's one that I'm willing to leave my husband and kids for. I want to go to Eritrea. I want to see it. I want to work there. So you flew in, and you arrive, and what is it? What is this country, which is in the Horn of Africa, and not on the hot list of anyone traveling? Well, you know, that was the amazing part about it. Because how many places do you go to in today's globalized world where we have so much information about everything and you have Google Maps and you can see everything and sort of form an opinion? But about Eritrea, I had barely any opinion at all, except a few books that I'd read and a few things that I'd heard from friends and colleagues who'd worked there. So I came with this completely blank slate and a lot of expectations and a little bit of trepidation, you know, going completely into the unknown. And there was something about just landing there. I remember being picked up at the airport and some people came to greet me and I felt this affinity. It's kind of hard to describe, but I think that happens to all of us. You know, there are places where you instantly somehow feel more at home than in others. And I can't quite describe it, but it's a feeling that sort of grew quite quickly and it just made me feel a lot more at home than I had any right of feeling because it was pretty alien in some ways. But they'd put me up in this sort of one big hotel in town. And I decided the next day that I was going to go explore. And so I went off with my sneakers on a, this dusty track. And someone had said, oh, yeah, just follow this road and you'll find the cathedral. But of course, I didn't find the cathedral. I walked for ages and I was getting really thirsty. And I realized I had no nakfa. I didn't have the local currency and it's really quite tricky to change Nakfa because you're only allowed to change it in certain government locations. And so I realized I had no, no Nakfa, no water, no working phone. And I was traipsing along on this beautiful sunny day. And then this little group of kids picked me up and they said, China, China, because that's what they call foreigners. I don't think I look particularly Asian, but all I could hear was China, China, you lost. And I said, yeah, I think China's lost. And they're like, what do you want to go see? And I said, cathedral. And they say, we take you. It was a band of little kids. And they had this sort of dried injera, which is the staple, in their pockets. And they were trying to give me bits of injera because, you know, they're very hospitable Eritreans. So they wanted to make sure I wasn't about to keel over from starvation. And then they took me to the cathedral. And they said, here's cathedral. Here's cathedral. And I was suddenly in the middle of Asmara, which honestly looks as though you've traveled in time to the 1950s. I don't think it has changed very much. There are these Italian buildings. There's a stone cathedral. It's this wide avenue with palm trees. Bougainvillea everywhere because the Italians brought a lot of that. There's a lot of local Eritrean masonry that's kind of blended in. And then you see these old gentlemen walking with their Borsalino hats and their coats that are far too big for them and and you have sort of quite Italianate names and you have these ancient cars and it really feels like you've gone back in time. It felt so magical. And so I was standing in front of this cathedral looking down at this sort of 1950s cityscape. You know, it's a small sleepy town, Asmara, with this little group of kids who are kind of waiting for me to take in the beauty of their cathedral. And then I wanted to thank them for having gone out of their way. I didn't want them to get in trouble. And I said, can I buy you a little pastry? Because I'd heard that there was some fantastic pastry in Asmara, you know, old Sicilian cookies that they stopped making in Sicily decades ago, but old grandmothers still make them in Asmara. And they said, yes, yeah, sure. So we went to the little pastry shop. And I'd managed by that point to change a few nakfa. I had no idea exactly how many, but I figured a few pastries, so it would probably be okay. 
And then they said, no, you buy yourself pastries, but we don't want any. And I said, what do you mean? Your kids. Of course you want pastries. And they said, no. And there was something that I then got to learn quite quickly in Eritrea, this pride, you know, this self-reliance. You don't just take what's given to you. You feel like you have to deserve it. And they somehow felt that they didn't need to be rewarded. And coming from the States or, you know, from Northern Europe, where everybody has such a built-in expectation to be rewarded for anything, this was like, and I had to literally stand there on the street corner and negotiate with them. These like five, six, seven-year-olds, please, will you accept a pastry? And by the way, just the fact that with English, I could negotiate with them already tells you a lot about this country, I think. You know, they spoke English well enough to be involved in this conversation with this random person they'd sort of picked up. So I kind of reckon I'm a pretty good negotiator. But, you are a diplomat. Um, yeah, but I didn't have it. a patch on those kids. And so in the end, the best I could get out of them was their agreement that the youngest in the group I was allowed to buy a pastry for, not the others, just the baby. And this happened day two, depending how you count. I'd arrived the night before. And that's sort of what set me up for my year there, that experience. That's beautiful. It's a beautiful lesson. If only we could apply that lesson in Western civilization. Do you think we call Africa the West? It's like a weird thing being from South Africa. Like people call us Western. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, well. Eritrea feels very Eastern to me. At the same time, very European. It's been such a melting pot of cultures. And I think that's why I also felt that affinity. They identify with a lot of different cultures. So it makes it easier for you to identify with them. But, so it's a good question. I would not call Eritrea the West. I mean, there's no McDonald's. There's no 3G. There's no Diet Coke. I would not call it the West. Let's talk about the food. Because I know that I've never woken up and been like, can't wait to go eat some <laughs> Eritrean food tonight. There's every culture you could possibly imagine in my city. I don't know of the Eritrean restaurant. I'm sure it's here and I will find it and we will go there. But it's not something I think many people know about. Eritrean food, at least in Asmara, where I spent most of my time, is very similar to Ethiopian, but there's some really important differences. Essentially, it's injera is the sort of staple. And it's that big sort of spongy flatbread. And it's made out of what the Ethiopians call tef and we in Eritrea call taf, and it's supposed to be a superfood. It might be gluten-free or very low in gluten, has a really high iron content, and the Eritreans swear by it. It's like there's something about national identity and injera. People carry it around with them, and some people have actually said to me, I don't know what I would do. I don't know how I could live anywhere else where they don't make injera. And the funny thing is that there's a big Eritrean diaspora, and Many of them go out to other places. Like this woman was telling me she went to Angola and made a little bit of money by making injera for Eritreans that were at the time working in Angola. Like injera is a symbol for so much of the country. And it's really fantastic because you can add all these extra sort of bits to it. And it's very communal. So you eat with your hands and people take their time. Nobody's checking their phone and you couldn't anyway. It would be far too messy because you're eating with your hands. You don't sit there with your carefully guarded plate and knife and fork, you know, there's a big platter in the middle and everybody piles in and you learn all the different things that go into the injera. And my favorites were actually the fasting food. So many Eritreans are very devout and food and religion are closely intertwined. They have many periods where they're observing fasting and they will be absolutely rigorous. And the fasting food just means without meat. And so that's when you get all these creative vegetarian dishes. So I actually always quite like the fasting food. There's one thing I didn't like. And unfortunately, that's the one dish that people prepare for you when you're a guest of honor in someone's house. And it's called ga'at. And it's basically a porridge, but you eat it with melted butter and chili powder and yogurt. And it's incredibly rich. When you're expecting a baby, you're supposed to eat it because there's a a belief that that's good for young expectant mothers. Not for me. It looks beautiful. It's like this sort of mountain and presenting a ga'at is such a sign of 
welcome to my home. That was difficult. <laughs> that was difficult. Like that. And I would try and find ways of saying, I know your wife is very busy. Please tell her she doesn't have to do ga'at for me. Or I will just come from lunch, you know, no need for ga'at. Coffee is fine. Because the one thing I loved is the Eritrean coffee ceremony. That is something for the senses. I'm Austrian, so I love coffee. I'm obsessed with coffee. But it's about as far away as you could get from your caramel latte grande with sprinkles on top in Starbucks as you could possibly imagine. You know, this is the real thing where you hear the coffee beans being roasted in this old metal pan over the fire. So you, you hear the click, 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 click of the beans and then they start smelling good and you're supposed to wave your hand over the smoke of the beans towards your nose and that's a sort of respect sign of respect to the person who's preparing the coffee and then the coffee comes and there's always a little bit of popcorn and injera and other things with it and you sit and you have the first round and then you have the second round and then you have the third which is called baraka means blessing and maybe after the third round you can be on your way but maybe not, because then sometimes there's a fourth round and there's a fifth round. And this is a sort of centerpiece of people's life. You know, this is how they communicate. They communicate over coffee. And it's perfectly acceptable for life to just stop because you're having coffee. And then I think, you know, when you stand here in the line for your takeout and you're rushing off with it to some meeting, how different. We've evolved around this ancient tradition of coffee, and there it's still ancient. I think it's a century-old thing as far as I know, and you feel that, you know. That's why I booked a counterculture barista to come and spend the afternoon with us and slowly make coffee for the last five hours in studio. <laughs> I knew that you were going to tell me some slow, beautiful Eritrean coffee story. Yeah. What is the thing that touched you mm -hmm. the most? What is the thing that sticks with you that you just can't stop thinking about? I think the thing that touched me the most is realizing this thirst for opportunity and willingness to make something out of opportunities that I saw, especially in young people. For example, there's a quite a vibrant music scene, which is a bit counterintuitive because Eritrea is a country that struggled for 30 years to gain its independence against overwhelming odds, where promoting the arts was not exactly a top priority. And then with the isolation and the sanctions, certain things just remained out of reach that wouldn't be out of reach elsewhere. For example, I'd really like to know how many pianos are there in Eritrea? I know of a few, and in fact, I spent a day in San Francisco trying to find a spare part for one of them because there wasn't a spare part in the country to be had. And yet, I met virtuoso pianists. I met a jazz singer who sounded as though she'd grown up in the Bronx. I met an opera singer who can perform in Italian and German. And when I asked him, so when is the first time you actually ever heard opera? He said, um, Tom and Jerry cartoon. And so how do you become a virtuoso musician in a context where it's not that easy to get materials or sheet music or instruments? And so we were discussing this one night after a beautiful concert. And these Eritrean musicians, they said, you know something, Shasha, because I often got called Shasha. You know something, Shasha? We're always so pleased when we hear that Eritreans in San Francisco or in New York or in Berlin or wherever have come top of their class or top of their PhD program or have excelled in a business. Because we really think that if you give Eritreans two centimeters of opportunity, they will make two kilometers of opportunity out of that. And that's an attitude that's just really impressive. It's an impressive attitude to life. And you saw that throughout. I mean, the musicians were sort of one example. 
but you could sort of see that throughout in the mentality. And that was, I think, to me, a sort of lesson that I hope I'll never forget. I've told my kids, I've told my husband, you know, it's something that I think will always stick with me. And I hope, I hope the Eritreans never lose it. I mean, it's something very precious. I hope that stays in their culture. I really do. As they open up and as they are opening up to the world in mm -hmm. a way that has never been that way. I mean, I, I grew up partly in Africa and Eritrea was always one of the places that wasn't as well known as the others. Mm -hmm. Kenya was up and coming always. Mm -hmm. My parents were always talking about Nairobi. They were always talking about, of course, Angola and the potential in these countries. And Eritrea was not on the list. And now it is in a way. And I think that's so amazing. And I love that there's an idea that it's the little guy that can inspire. Somehow like the unexpected place is always the place that teaches me this lesson that I'm like, shit, that's spectacular. Mm -hmm. Let me take that. Mm -hmm. And I think what I wish for people to hear is if you travel, you are able to learn these lessons if you're open to them. Because the country, the place, the town, the people will give you these lessons. The moments are there if you're willing to open yourself. Hmm. Most people are not. But if you open yourself up just a little bit, just a fraction, just two centimeters, perhaps there's two kilometers of beauty and inspiration and wisdom that's ready for you. I think that's beautifully said. I think that's exactly right. And maybe because a place like Eritrea, you come to without preconceived ideas. Like everybody knows what they want to see when they go to Tokyo, right? Or Paris, or I've got friends staying with me right now. They've got a list for New York City. And given that we have such a surplus of information usually about everything these days, it's just so refreshing to go with a deficit of information. An information deficit you can't even fill by Googling the crap out of it because it doesn't exist in that way. That's kind of a pioneer thing. You feel that you might as well be the only person discovering this. But to be honest, it was a rush for me in that year. I mean, there were moments I would feel it. And on Eritrea, you know, there's like a secret handshake of internationals who've been there. And actually... <laughs> Handshake is the wrong word. It's more like a shoulder bump because traditionally the old fighters, when they meet, they don't shake hands. They bump their right shoulders together three times. It's a bit awkward at first, but you kind of get used to it. And at first I wasn't sure whether I was allowed to do that, given that I'm not exactly a fighter. I didn't exactly earn my spurs. But, you know, they're quite open. So you sort of shoulder bump. And there's a, a sort of community of people who've been to Eritrea so there's something quite special about that. That is the beauty of going off the beaten track. So I would love to challenge people mm -hmm. to go and find mm -hmm. the other Eritreas of the world mm -hmm. in the most respectful, most appropriate way. I mean, perhaps it's somewhere in Ohio, mm -hmm. some part of Greenland, that you could go and learn something similar. Mm-hmm. The world is open. It's ready. Mm -hmm. You just have to go. Totally agree. Thank you for spending time with me. This was spectacular. You tell such beautiful stories. Thank you for wanting to hear them. This is a great moment for us to travel to advertising land. And we'll be right back with Everywhere. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery. But that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily, as I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story, which has morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she as my father believed, a witch. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Welcome once again to Everywhere. Let's hop back to it. For my next interview, I'm with my friend Nancy Silverton, the chef of Los Angeles. We talk about how borders are not just physical, but metaphysical and emotional. Okay, so what I wanted us to really talk about is my show is about fuck the list, don't check off anything. Food is a way to take you into humanity and travel is an equal way, a way to touch humanity. You've made a career out of food, I've made a career out of travel, but essentially we're looking for the same thing. We're looking to find ways to be with humanity, right? Absolutely. So tell me how that feels to you and what you think about. Well, I'll tell you. I live for food. I live to eat. I live to make food. All of it is very interconnected. I love to cook because, first of all, I love to use my hands. So the cooking that I do is very simple cooking, where I use rolling pins to roll out doughs, and I use knives to chop, and I use my favorite wooden spoons to stir, right? And there's something that I connect with those very, very basic tools. I am so inspired, most of all, with produce. That is what really gets me thinking. That's where I start to create a dish, is from produce. And from that, it turns into whether it's a salad or a vegetable or a complement to a protein. It always starts with produce and it always starts with myself, no matter where I am and what country, no matter what city, no matter what state, it starts at the farmer's market. And that's my way of connecting with the city. So first and foremost, my pleasure when it comes to food is actually being able to prepare the food. I get so much joy when I make food that makes people happy. And then, so it's the preparing, it's the joy that I bring, but it's being at the table with friends. There's nowhere else I would want to be than at that table. If it's two or 50 with delicious food, that's where all my friends always gravitated because there was such interesting conversation at my dinner table. You know, I grew up in an era where there was definitely um, most uh, mothers were non-working mothers, right? They were working in the household, but not out of the household. The father would come home, little cocktail hour, down to a very sterile dinner. And I didn't grow up that way. Um, My mother did, she was a homemaker, but she was also a writer. So she wrote from the house. And my father was a lawyer and they were very, very political and they had very interesting friends. And always at the dinner table at my house was just a whole lot of healthy conversation. Just the being fed, the comfort, just brought out so many wonderful conversations. And my parents were just so well-read and so opinionated. That's really where I learned everything, you know? I really learned so much more at that table than I did at school. But see, like these conversations with my parents, they wouldn't have happened if one of my parents said, let's sit down and talk. And there was no food, right? Right. An empty table could be the same sitting, nothing in front of them. I don't think there would have been that conversation because I think so much goes on with each bite. Right. You're so right. Because it's a story. You know, food is a story. And when I taste people's food that I can't taste their story... It's just so one note. Half the time, you don't even need to know who's cooking it. You taste it and you taste the story of that, of whoever that is that's responsible. And that's the best kind of food. Right. So I have this little thing that I always say. I say that travel is a way to lose yourself to find yourself. Maybe you want to tell me a little bit about how you see that. If that rings... Well, I think it also has to do with what kind of travel you do. So if you are somebody that from your comfort, comfort of your own home, city, plan out a trip where every minute is accounted for, for instance, being met at the airport in whatever 
city it is, being driven to whatever hotel that you've planned, being picked up for whatever meal. Some people, that's the way they have to travel is every step has to be because they are afraid of the unknown. But if you can travel, and this is something that I definitely learned from my father, if you can pack a suitcase and make a plane ticket and pack your passport and just go and probably have a hotel because that helps to have a hotel. But sort of the rest is just the excitement of the unknown and exploring. It's a whole different kind of trip. And that's the only way I know how to travel. I've never been on a guided tour or anything like that. Um, Sometimes if I'm going to a city that I know there are a couple restaurants that are hard to get into and it helps to have a reservation before, I will do that. But most of it is open because you never know what's down that alley, right? Tell me a story about what you found. You went down an alley somewhere, you turned left somewhere where you were going to turn right. Well, that's like... Every experience that I have traveling is like that, really, is going out the door and turning right. Um, I love to collect antique, I don't know if they're real antiques, but old coffee grinders, which I use for pepper grinders or pepper mills. So they're square boxes with a drawer and a grinder. But when I cook, I love to cook with very coarse crack black pepper. And the only way to get that coarseness is to uh, break the peppercorns with the back of a um, frying pan to crack them because I like them that coarse, especially on steak. So you really crunch into them. But with these coffee grinders, you can uh, turn the grinder to a very coarse grind. And just by uh, turning the crank and opening up the drawer, you have a whole lot of pepper to season with. And I love them and they're beautiful. So um, there's just so many examples I just don't have on the top of my head, of just pulling up to a tiny hilltop town in my own region of Umbria, where I, you know, where I have a house, and just getting out. And whether it's a beautiful cheese store, a bakery, you know, those are the kinds of things, a beautiful church that you open the door, you know, it's all that discovery. That's what travel is for me. Travel has a way that it offers you an opportunity to try everything, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, I if was, you're willing to, right? Well, that's what I want you to, to tell me. You know, like, I mean, you got to go with the punches. You know, it's not all going to be success, and there's going to be some setbacks and some difficulty. You know, like last time I was in Mexico City, right? I was uh, in a very uh, crowded, actually, bakery, and I got my wallet stolen out of my purse. So it could have ruined my trip or I could have had a great time the last two days that I was there. And that's what I chose, you know? So you have to expect that things can happen. You know, I have some friends that I travel with and I have to say they're a lot pickier than I am. And so we'll go to a hotel that they hadn't already checked out online to see the rooms. And when they get there, some of them have to change rooms two or three or four. You know, it's like, I really don't care, you know? Yeah, you're like, I'm going out, you know? I have stuff to do. Yeah. So I think there's, you have to have that willingness to accept the unknown, accept that it's not going to be seamless, but that's part of the adventure. And sometimes adventures are the memories. Aren't they always right? the memories? <laughs> I mean, I don't think you come back and you say, oh, yes, I stayed at this lovely hotel. And oh, and the hotel, and the hotel, and the hotel. That's boring. No, like the <laughs> yeah. plane. Oh, my yeah. God, the seat, the blah, blah, blah. No, you tell me about... I met this person. Yeah. We went yeah. on this wild adventure. I met them randomly at a coffee shop. We exactly. shared this thing. They were like, come to a dinner. And I said, my God, of course. And the next thing, I'm at a fucking crazy party at someone's house. Right. And you you know what? You wouldn't get that experience out of a guidebook. Can't. Can't. Put down yeah. the guidebook. <laughs> Please. Um, I guess we should talk about a little bit of Los Angeles. Because... You are so quintessentially Los Angeles. I'm from Los Angeles. Yeah. But I think if people think about the food scene of Los Angeles, it's you. Like, you're my first person who comes to mind. Um, And L.A. was never a food town as much as it had the best food. It was. It was just not recognized because when... That's what I mean. Okay. So when people thought about food, they thought about food being cooked by a foodie. Does that make sense to our Mm -hmm. listeners? Okay. 
They didn't think about all of the neighborhoods that Los Angeles has more than anywhere else in the country where the people are cooking their food. I mean, so many ethnic neighborhoods in Los Angeles where the food has always been so wonderful. And so I think when people started recognizing the food of immigrants as food, all of a sudden people started looking at Los Angeles where we always supported that food and that food culture. Well, because in some ways they did this offensive thing in America where they called food that wasn't, in parentheses, American, they called it exotic. Exotic. Fuck you. (laughs) Like, I mean, to me that's racist. (laughs) Like, it's all those bad, bad things. But I think that Los Angeles, to me, and I, I, I was a closet lover of Los Angeles. See, you, you had to be a closet lover. Yeah, right. And I'm by the way, I never, I never defended it when, you know, when people would ask me, that, you know, where are you from? And I would say Los Angeles. Oh, I hate Los Angeles. Terrible city. I wouldn't, I wouldn't defend it because I understood why people had that feeling because this is a city you have to spend time in to get to know. But yeah, even just the distance. Yeah, just the, just the, the distance because of that, right. yes. I feel like Los Angeles is on the up. It's a city that's moving up. Mm -hmm. And that, I love it. When I come, I find myself mesmerized every time. And sort of a little sad that I'm leaving. But I'm a New Yorker, which is, you know, we were never supposed to love Los Angeles. We were supposed to deny Los Angeles. You were supposed to hate Los Angeles. Yeah, it feels like every time I'm like, God, I'm somewhere new. Like, what is this now? Yeah. Of course, it's gentrifying. Yeah. And... It's a natural part mm-hmm. of the city, and there's obviously two sides to that. Um, but hopefully we have... It's California, so there's an oversight here that's... Not an oversight. There's an um, overrule here that's positive, mm-hmm. right? Where it's like, we're going to try and make this as sustainable and ecologically as possible right. in a major city. I think the mayor's done an amazing job. I think that he's doing his best. I mean, they could do something about the homelessness. I was going to say, the homelessness is but just... But what are we supposed to do? I wish it was that simple, you know, Uh, but it's just out of control now. Right. But I'm tired of saying that. Like, that's the thing that I'm like, I'm tired of saying like, what the homeless is, what a problem. I'm tired of, like, 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 we need to do something. These mass shootings. It's terrible, right? Are we sick of hearing that? I'm sick of hearing (laughs) it. Yeah, no, it is true. And it's not happening fast enough is the problem. And it's getting worse. And I have to say, I haven't seen... Homeless, the homeless situation at this grandeur anywhere else in the country. Mm-hmm. It is the worst here right now. It's maybe what I want to end our little chat with is maybe I want you to tell me something really personal about you, something that you're not sharing that's been in your head and just something that you're like, no one's ever okay. asked me. Nothing. Well, no one's ever asked me. And I don't, I have to say, I don't feel like I'm unique in this feeling. I obviously have gotten a lot of notoriety. I've gotten a lot of awards. I have successful businesses. Uh, people's taught me on the street. All those kinds of acknowledgement. And yet, like, not even deep down, just a little bit down, I'm always thinking, like, when are they going to find out that I'm really an imposter, that I'm not that talented and I don't really know what I'm doing and somehow I make it work and I've, been fooling them all. And you can't shake that feeling. Hmm. I have that feeling too. Yeah. And I am in no way as successful <laughs> as you are. But You're half the um, age, remember. <laughs> but I have it too. I think... What um, is that? It's a deep insecurity that yeah. we all have, that we allow others to check our value system. You know, now I'm putting a podcast, I'm putting a creative project into the world and... For the first time, it's not a magazine or the New York Times or whoever I'm writing for directing it. I'm directing this with my wonderful producer and we, he's my creative um, ally, but I'm scripting it. It's, mm-hmm. it's my thing. So here I'm putting my soul, yeah. my everything out into the world and I'm going, how do we value this? Oh, it's downloads and streams and advertising dollar and that's 
petrifying to me because I'm only interested in the construction and destruction of the creative process. The rest of the stuff is like, I've never had to think of myself like that mm -hmm. and value myself like that because I've probably constructed a world around me that I didn't have to because fuck, what if I'm not good enough? Yeah. And what does that mean? You know, I think it's hard to put a value on a creative expression and you've taken your creativity and people pay money for it. So of course you have to be like, oh, am I worth a hundred dollar ticket right. at lunch? And am I worth the bill? And that's fucking scary. It is. But maybe it's okay. Because every day when, when I feel like, oh my God, like, what is this now? I just have to stand in my posture and say, only you are there to judge this. The rest of the world doesn't matter. But it's fucking tough. It is. And I am my harshest critic yeah. for myself. But I don't feel like I'm a, a judgmental person and I'm always looking to judge people. I'm not, but I do judge myself. But you're a success <laughs> and you're so wonderful and you're so sweet uh -huh. and, and you're so homey. <laughs> so what is there to judge? I'll let you know when I am on your show next time. <laughs> If I figured out what that was, you can ask me that. Fine. I, I, will, <laughs> I will make a note. Well, thank you for... Um, thank you. What spending. a pleasure. Oh my God, what a pleasure. Yeah, what a pleasure that you didn't ask me what my last meal would be, or if I had to design my perfect dinner party, alive or dead, you know, who would those be? You know, it's like, really? But I don't or give a fuck. what it's like to be a woman in the kitchen. It's like... Uh, you're a woman? <laughs> yeah, right. So I have a plane to catch, but if you'd still like to reach us, go to Everywhere Podcast on Instagram, EverywherePod on Twitter, or the website at EverywherePodcast.com. Thanks for hanging out. I'm Daniel Scheffler, and I'll see you everywhere. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. My whole life, I've been told this one story about my family, about how my great-great-grandmother was killed by the mafia back in Sicily. I was never sure if it was true, so I decided to find out. And even though my Uncle Jimmy told me I'd only be making the vendetta worse, I'm going to Sicily anyway. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.